Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. Oh, man. This is... Uh, I, I I don't like I don't like how do I put it this how do I put it this way I don't like we've had some fire fucking podcasts lately Nick Corbishley, um absolutely blew my mind I've had a lot of people reach out to me about that podcast you got to read the book or listen to it on Audible it is absolutely incredible and you know we I tried to extract as much as humanly possible in the hour with him um, but there's just details that you simply can't get in an hour that he dives into in the book. And it's a hard pill to swallow, but I think it's one of the most important conversations anyone could be having right now. Yeah, just a fucking phenomenal guest who I love and I, I can't wait to, to continue the conversation with. Today's show is with another incredible author who, you know, without comparing, easily one of my favorite guests that I've ever had. And uh, most certainly this year, he is an author who wrote The End to Upside Down Thinking, another book called The End to Upside Down Living, and then most recently, An End to Upside Down Liberty, which is easily one of the most important books that I've ever read. It's it's for sure, um, it's number one on my list for 2022. And I know that I read a lot of books, so even though we're only a few, four months into 2022, I've probably read more books than most people do in a couple of years at this point in this year. And this is, this is a big one. It is an absolute big one. It's the first that I've ever read of its kind where it critically looks at government and um, the way we police ourselves, control systems, and then mirrors that with a spiritual understanding that is on par with any of the greats that I've ever read. Adyashanti, uh, Eckhart Tolle, I mean, the who's who, Ram Dass, if you put them on a list... And, and extracted the ultimate knowing and spiritual teachings from these masters, Mark Goldberg's got it. I mean, he's got, and he describes it just perfectly well. He's an incredible author. Um, but then he shows you how that applies to government, how that applies to the way that we look after each other and ourselves. And I've never seen that done appropriately. I've never seen, I mean, people... You know, I don't know, like there's a, the, you could say the political left is new agey or scientific and atheist and the political right is Christian. Like any of these things, it's like, yeah, those are broad strokes. Nobody in my understanding has ever really married these two in a way that not only makes sense, but actually shows through quadrants. You know, he, he does a little graph um, in his book. And, and for the Audible listeners, Audible is fantastic. He also reads his own book and he's incredible. He's, he's got a great voice. He breaks down what this graph is, and I, I had him. Uh, this is one of the most, arguably one of the most important concepts to to visualize. Towards the end of this podcast, we break that down for people, but there is so much that just blew my mind in this book. That was, you know, ways that I had thought before, and you know, it comes out on the podcast where there's some liber libertarian viewpoints, and I bring up um, uh, the Silk Road 2.0. There's an excellent book we'll link to in the show notes called American Kingpin also phenomenal audible listen that is on the guy who, who became the dread pirate Roberts from the Silk Road 2.0 and how he was diehard libertarian. He started the Silk Road 2.0 for people that don't know it was a place to buy drugs and anything you want on the deep, deep dark web. There we go. Deep, deep. I'm thinking deep state on the dark web via cryptocurrency and things like that. And it started with him having, you know, really profound mushroom journeys 
and wanting to be able to share that with the world and not get in trouble for it. And he set up a pretty cool system for payment so vendors could sell, they'd have ratings. And um, if they didn't pony up and, and deliver the goods, then that money would be kind of like held in an escrow and it could be returned to the purchaser. Really novel, technologically advanced things at the time. But where he went wrong is he lived and died on the libertarian ideals that, that basically the market determined. So when he had employees saying, like, people are asking, can, can we sell black market kidneys? And he's like, the, the market determines it, then yes, they can sell black market kidneys. So now they've got black market organs for sale. And, and it just continues until by the end of this thing, you know, the FBI is after him, the CIA, the IRS, all these people are coming after him. They're selling, you could purchase a hitman if you wanted to kill somebody. You could purchase any drug on the planet. So not just, you know, psilocybin and some of the more esoteric and plant medicine-like. You could buy meth. You, you could buy heroin. You could buy fentanyl. I mean, shit that kills people and destroys people's lives, all available because the market says so. Um, as I mentioned, black market organs. And then all the way to like grenades and, and like weird malware where you can steal people's identity. Th- you know, like you load a program on your computer, hang out in a coffee shop or an airport, and anybody that walks by you without it uh, protected gets their shit stolen. Like they're, they're, literally, like you could see the pitfall after pitfall after pitfall of where the ism of libertarianism, libertarianism, where that fails. And what's beautiful, and I bring this up in the podcast, is that the graph explains how you work with that and move beyond it through spirituality and through the knowing of what we are and the, the, the nature of consciousness itself. You know, And really, that, that is broken down so well from Mark in terms of how we were raised, like, yeah, you might've been raised in a church, but how you were raised in school with separation of church and state was that the big bang started, uh, everything was a random and paper thin sliver of a chance that existence happened. And, and it's a paper thin sliver of a chance that we're in the Goldilocks zone and, uh, through random bumping into each other and chemical interactions, bodies were made, things evolved. And then from the brain, consciousness emerged. That's what most of us were brought up believing in school and academia. And unfortunately, that's where a great deal of academia uh, still lives. But there's ample evidence of the contrary. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Mark, because you know people know I beat the plant medicine bandwagon, is that all of his transcendent states of awareness have not occurred from plant medicine, at least in, a, in, in the book. He speaks about many of the pathways that lead us there without touching on plant medicine. So it was just a fantastic bridge, I think, not only for my listeners, but for me to understand that that is not only possible, of course we know that, but his path into into the deep dive and and really understanding the fundamental nature of consciousness of the non-dual nature of consciousness is incredible. His mentors are incredible. I geek out when he dives into, you know, who uh, his first Vipassanas were with and different people that have helped him along the way. So, um, I love you big time, Mark. I will have you back on the podcast. What I'm going to do too for Mark is, is I'm going to email, uh, intro him to many of the homies, Paul Check, Aubrey Marcus, just as many awesome Dr. Nathan Riley, who, who turned me on to his book in the first place. Uh, any and everybody, I just want to hear him on podcasts more and more and more. Just an incredible dude. And I also want to backlog his first two books, which I haven't read because if they're anything like the, An End to Upside Down Liberty, then they are life-changing books. It's a life-changing book. All right. There are many ways you can support this podcast. First and foremost, share it with your friends. That's the easiest thing to do. You just say, yo, dude, you got to check this one out. Bamo, you send them a link on Spotify or, or I, if they're Apple to Apple, you just send the podcast app link. 
all that good stuff. The other way is to leave us a five-star rating. We've got quite a few of them already, but it still helps give the show fresh looks. And then last but not least, support us by supporting our sponsors. Our sponsors are hand-selected, either from me or a very small team of close friends that I've been working with for years now. It's like five years we've been working together. And um, these guys know me just as well as I know myself. They know what I'm interested in. They know what I'm not interested in. And um, of course, I still have veto power when they bring me one. But um, every now and then, I got to say no. But for the most part, it's a yes. And I continue to find these amazing companies. And these guys are all tried and true. I mean, the four we've got today are four classic sponsors been with us for a very long time. And they've been with us for a long time because people love these products and these absolutely work. Uh, the first company that is sponsored today's show is called Lucy.co. Look, we're all adults here. And I know some of us choose to use nicotine to relax, focus, or just unwind after a long day. Lucy is a modern oral nicotine company that makes nicotine gum, lozenges, and pouches for adults who are looking for the best, most responsible way to consume their nicotine. It's a new year. Why not start it out by switching to a new nicotine product that you can feel good about? Uh, I recently had a, um, one of my boys, Nate Smith, who I, I met on the Sacred Hunt with Monsel, came out and he had the pouches with him. And I love them because they hit quick. I mean, they're just a phenomenal way to tune in. And, and one of the great things, we talk a lot about adaptogenic herbs and things like that. Nicotine, by, by every stretch of the imagination, is an adaptogen, in my opinion, because of the fact that it can calm you if you're anxious. It can lift you if you're tired. It allows you to focus and the window is short enough. It's not, you know, it's not a 15, 20 minute window. It's a 45 minute, 60 minute window. The window is short enough that you can have it in the evenings and it's still not going to keep you awake. It's not like having a cup of coffee before you go to bed. I know certain people do that. I'm like, man, <laughs> what's with you? What's happening to your adrenals right now? Um, this works on a separate pathway. It affects the brain in a very easy, like I've mentioned before, it's like a skeleton key, a master key that goes in and fits into acetylcholine receptors in the brain which switches on your ability to learn, your ability to recall language and information, and your ability to connect the dots. It is also a muse for a lot of creative people, artists, and things of that nature will chain smoke or do these things that have been typically seen like a uh, comedian on stage because it jogs the mind. But there's a better way to do that. And that's really, really what this is all about. I don't have, a, you know, top 10 in health and fitness uh, two out of the last four years. And it's like, <laughs> there is an intelligent way to utilize nicotine. And there is a way to utilize nicotine that will kill you. So this is not that. This is, um, this is the cleanest, cleanest possible way that you can ingest nicotine. Check it out. Lucy.co. That's L-U-C-Y dot C-O. And use promo code KKP at checkout. And you're going to get a lovely 20% discount. And the disclaimer here, warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. All right. So now that I've read that, must be read verbatim. This is just the best way to use nicotine, period. Visit lucy.co and be sure to use the promo code KKP at checkout, 20% off everything, and you will find a lot of benefit to this incredible medicine. We're also brought to you by organifi.com slash KKP. I had Drew Canoli on the podcast, who is hands down one of my favorite people on the planet. They're doing great things at Organifi. And, um, you know, this company was birthed really in community building and seeing what the communities were up to and wanting to take, like, what are the people that they're working with, which is a big audience, um, where were they consistently running into issues? And one of the consistent things, same with me and Fit for Service, is like, how do I eat something healthy 
on the go? How can I quickly add something to my daily routine that allows me to not only improve my health, but not fall off the wagon? You know, and I heard Drew talking with Paul Check about how the red juice, which is a wonderfully sweet and amazing adaptogenic compound, the red juice can curb carb cravings. It can curb your sweet tooth. And I was like, that's genius. I didn't even think of that. It's an excellent pre-workout. I use it before every workout. It's an excellent pre-bedroom activity for both men and women. And um, well, honestly, I've only had a couple of times trying it before the bedroom because, well, we got little ones and it's hit and miss. But all that said, um, that, that, that blew my mind thinking about that. Like I've, I've, because of the times that I've spent in ketosis and fasting and all of that stuff. And, and, you know, of course, having the fasting mimicking diet coming back up here for full temple reset part due, I've pretty much exercised the demons on carb cravings, but I work with a lot of people who aren't there yet. And so it's a wonderful thing to understand that that organify red juice is something that can kick the carb cravings, the sugar cravings, the sweet tooth cravings down the curb. And when you're doing that, not only is that a benefit for you in taking back control, but it's going to improve all sorts of things. It improves blood flow. It improves cardiovascular, it improves the mitochondria. And there's mushrooms and different adaptogenic herbs that all help you do that. And it tastes fantastic. My son loves it. Uh, we'll slam it pre-workout together. And when we're doing stuff outside, he is like loving the med ball slams with a, I think a 20 pounder. Yeah, 20. Stronger than that, but he's not even seven years old yet. So we don't need him to go crazy, but he absolutely loves it. It's like a Popeye spinach, even though he's never seen Popeye. So yeah, check it all out. Organifi.com slash KKP. You're going to get 20% off everything in the store. Give the red juice a try. I mean, I've been hyping green juice for so long, which is definitely a mainstay in the diet. And Wolfie loves the, she's not even two yet. She's drinking green juice. The red juice is phenomenal. Give that a shot. Try it pre-workout. Try it in the bedroom. And if you do have a sweet tooth, just see about making a drink with that and seeing what that does for you because it will knock out the sweet tooth. It is incredibly tasty and still only three grams of sugar. Organifi.com slash KKP. Use code KKP for 20% off everything in the store. And this next sponsor is from the homies at Buy Optimizers. Have you had bad gas lately? I know this may be an uncomfortable topic, unless you're my son who loves talking about farts. The only reason I bring it up is because bad gas is a sign you have undigested food fermenting in your gut. This is occasionally a problem for all of us. Just ask my wife <laughs> or my son. And that's why I want to tell you about P3OM products. You know, this is, this is actually true. I, I have a love for Eden family or Eden farm beans. They're organic. They're pressure cooked, which uh, destroys the lectins and oxalates and all that fun stuff after reading Gundry's book. And when we do Taco Tuesdays, I have that. I still remained a little bit gassy from the beans, but the P3OM actually helps knock out 90% of that. So Rather than just turning into a fart song, you know, which is every like 10, 20, 30 seconds, um, seems to give me way less bloating, way more comfort. And anything that would normally uh, make me a little gassy, like sourdough bread because of the mild gluten intolerance, P3OM knocks that out completely. P3OM is a patented probiotic that eats up excess sugar, eliminates bad bacteria fast, and protects your gut from inflammation and viruses. So you have less gas and a stronger immune system. P3OM also improves digestion, speeds up metabolism, and increases energy throughout the day. What makes P3OM so different from other probiotics is that it can survive the GI tract, and it goes through the whole body to support your gut and your entire immune response. It's a secret weapon for reducing and eliminating bad gas and upgrading your immunity and protection against bad bacteria. 
Here's some more great news. You can get 10% off P3OM right now by going to p3om.com slash kingsboo and typing in the coupon code, all caps, KINGSBOO10. And if you order it and it's not everything you hope for, their support team will give you all of your money back, no questions asked. Just visit p3om.com forward slash K-I-N-G-S-B-U to get 10% off with the discount code KINGSBOO10. And of course, for all y'all listeners, everything is linked to in the show notes here. So just um, peep the show notes. Just remember the coupon codes, uh, which should be in the show notes as well. That way I get credit and y'all get the fatty discount. Last but not least, we are brought to you by one of my all-time favorite companies, Super Speciosa. Look, Kratom is, is no doubt one of the things that I've been switched on to in the last year and a half or two years as easily one of the coolest legal plant medicine tools that I've ever added to the repertoire. Kratom is an all-natural herb related to coffee plant that has been used in Thailand for centuries. Kratom helps energize your mind and relax your body. It just helps you feel good without feeling impaired. Super Speciosa has only one ingredient, pure Kratom. This is, this is just phenomenal. They talk about, you know, riff on some of the different ways that Kratom might be able to help you. Extra courage to ask that special someone on a date, ask your boss for a raise, run the extra mile. Kratom's often used as a pre-workout. These are all great. I, li- I like that. The, the, the extra courage to ask someone on a date, that actually is quite true. And no, I'm not asking people on dates. We're not, we're not open relationship anymore. <laughs> but uh, there was a, um, a number of drugs that the Russians designed in the 70s, these scientists came up with to try to help them reduce inhibition without alcohol. And some of the different forms of GABA were used with that. So it's super interesting. But when you feel good, you're more confident. When you feel good, it's like, oh, fuck it. What do I got to lose, right? So that actually, <laughs> that's a pretty good one. Uh, I'm willing to bet that it would be a great help for people to get over the hump and discomfort around rejection. I'm going to ask you, the listener, whoever's single out there, hit me up on Zion or at Living with the Kingsburys. You can't tag us now, unfortunately. We've told too much of the truth. But um, if you're single and you try this, let me know how it feels. Let me know if it gives you more confidence. I feel certainly more confident when it comes to the workouts. I'm able to tap into my body. So the mind-muscle connection is completely on point and it's not impairing in the, you know, the fact that I'm not going to be like, whoa, I can't really stand up straight or I'm losing balance, balance, coordination, timing, everything's still there. I've used this before MMA workouts. I've used it before powerlifting. I've used this a number of different ways running and just imagine how great your runner's high will be when you extend that euphoria and bridge, bring the ceiling up 10 notches. That's what Kratom can do for you. It is phenomenal in the bedroom. I mean, imagine your orgasm magnified. That's really what does happen. And I've had, actually, we've had some good experiences with that, if I'm quite honest. So check it out. Try it with your girl or your guy or whatever the they terminology that people like to use these days. Try it with they. (laughs) They will be happy. For beginners, I recommend the Signature Super Speciosa Strain. It's their most popular, best-selling item. It, um, It is one of the strongest strains. So you know, if you go a little overboard on this, you might feel nauseous. Just back down, really tiptoe into this because the relationship you have with any medicine or any plant medicine for that matter is one that takes reciprocity. It's also one that takes respect. So if you're the kind of person, you know, like when I was a kid and I'd turn a bottle of Mad Dog 2020 upside down, that you can't have that kind of relationship with this plant. Respect it, start low, work your way up. And what you'll find is 
at different doses are better for different things. You might find a really good meditation dose. You might find a dose that's perfect pre-workout, and you might find one that's really good if you're going to go out and hit the dance floor. There are different strains that you can use in the evening if you still want to be able to sleep and will will have be less likely to keep you awake at night. Check it all out. Get superleaf.com slash KKP. That is G-E-T-S-U-P-E-R-L-E-A-F.com slash KKP and use code KKP at checkout for 20% off your entire order. Remember, code KKP at checkout, 20% off your entire order. Get superleaf.com slash KKP. And without further ado, my brother from another mother, Mark Gober. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Kyle. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, it, I, I, I typically have a similar arc to each show where I like to get people's background, you know, what was life like growing up? What, what brought you to be the person that you are today? And it's great too, because I, I really have an authentic interest in this because of the fact that um, what, what turned me on to you was your most recent book, An End to Upside Down Liberty, which I think is absolutely phenomenal. We're going to deep dive that, but you've got quite a bit of work that started before this that I want to deep dive into as well. And I don't really have, um, I don't have much there. So I'd love to get to know, uh, what was your life like growing up? What got you? I mean, obviously you're, you're, uh, quite accomplished academically and, um, your, your views definitely, they, they stand right in line with my thinking, but not in line with, with many people that come from, uh, such a background as yourself. So Tell me what makes you, you today. Sure. So let me take you back. Um, for my undergrad, I went to Princeton and I was on the tennis team there, division one program. I was one of the captains my senior year. So that's my, my background. I was traditional, um, like academically focused, focused on sports. And I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do after school. And many of my college, many of my classmates went into investment banking, management consulting, like traditional business paths. And since I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, I figured, why don't I try investment banking? And I was fortunate, or I don't know, it was not, it wasn't too much fun. But I was fortunate at the time because I really I wanted to get one of those jobs to uh, get a job at a large investment bank in New York. But I started in the summer of two thousand eight. That's when I graduated, so right before the financial crisis hit. And I was there from 2008 to 2010. So really brutal. I mean, barely slept, um, working nonstop. It's a tough job to begin with, but I was in a group that was responsible for advising financial companies. So my clients were companies like banks and insurance companies and asset managers, all the companies that were having struggles during that period. And add to that, add to the situation that I was at one of the banks that was having trouble too. So it was an extra stressful period. I certainly wasn't thinking about writing books or the topic of consciousness, which I got into much later. And in 2010, decided to leave investment banking. I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do long-term, but I figured for my early career, it was a good platform. And I ended up joining a firm next where I spent 10 years uh, first in the Boston office, and then I moved out to Silicon Valley, where I spent most of my time, and doing somewhat similar work advising companies, but more on the tech side, so with their in- inventions and intellectual property. So still very much a traditional business kind of thinker. And in 2016, that's when things shifted for me, and it even started a few years before that. And I talk about this more in my second book, and end to upside down living. 
where I, I kind of hit a wall in many ways. Um, the fundamental issue, as I look back at it now, was that I thought life had no meaning. I thought that's what I learned in school and everything I learned about science said that we live in a random, meaningless universe. So I could try to make up meaning while I'm alive, but in the end, it doesn't matter because we're all going to be dead anyway. So when I would have a big success or a big failure, that was the kind of thinking that was in the back of my mind. I didn't know how to make sense of the world. And I thought, well, tough, Mark. That's just the way it is. That's what science teaches us. And I'm not going to rationalize things. So it's, it's hard to be such an, a, an accomplishment-focused person like I was. I was looking at each achievement that was in front of me when you don't have meaning behind it. So in the 2014-2015 era, there were some business deals that didn't go my way, some, some things in my personal life with dating that didn't go the way that I wanted, and I didn't have any meaning in my life. So I was not in a great place, even though if you were looking from the outside, you'd say, you're, you're doing really well. You ha- you've achieved these things that you wanted to achieve. I, was, I felt like I was in a meaningless place. So I was in that lost state for a little while. And in 2016, I was listening to podcasts. I wasn't looking for anything new in particular um, with regard to what I ended up writing about. But I stumbled across um, alternative health shows and also business shows. So I was listening to one called Extreme Health Radio in August of 2016. And I heard a woman who was interviewed. This was not a show that I was seeking out. It just happened to be the next one on. And she talked about psychic abilities and that she communicated with non-physical beings and she worked with clients doing this. And she spoke about it in a very nonchalant way. I'm like, what's going on here? I've never heard someone speak quite like this before. And it wasn't like it changed my life at that moment, but the woman's name is Laura Powers. And she mentioned that she has her own podcast called Healing Powers during that interview. And I said, okay, that's interesting. Why don't I just listen to another podcast I have a long drive. I used to live in San Francisco and drove down to Silicon Valley, lots of traffic. So I turned on her podcast and it was a lot of people that, had, that were talking about very similar kind of thing. Um, non-physical entities, the, the survival of consciousness after the body dies, the reality of psychic abilities, the interconnectedness of everything, and more fundamentally, the idea that life has meaning. So a few months into this, I was listening to her podcast and that led me to reading lots of books and scientific papers and other podcasts. And I, I realized I had to rethink everything. And it was a totally disorienting period in the fall of 2016 because I was just coming out of this phase where I was really lost in life. And now my worldview was turned upside down, quite literally. And all I wanted to do was research. So I was just researching nonstop, uh, mostly on my own because my friends from my business world and from college, we're not thinking this way. So at first I didn't want to talk about what I was researching, but eventually I started to talk to people like over dinners and lunch. And some people were very receptive and they were like, they would think about these topics because like me, they hadn't, they used to think life was not fully meaningful, or at least they hadn't considered those topics. And I was finding that when I had these discussions, many people said, their, their own lives were shifting in certain ways. So fast forward to t- uh, summer of 2017, I had been spending all this time researching. I said, I'm going to put this down into a book. And I took the 4th of July weekend that year, which was a long weekend. Um, and I said, I'm just going to write as much of this as I can. And I wanted to focus on this topic of consciousness and all the evidence um, for psychic abilities, for the survival of consciousness after bodily death. So things like children with past life memories, near-death experiences, telepathy, et cetera. Put all the evidence into a book and 
fast forward another year, it was published in 2018. Uh, in 2019, I produced a podcast series where I interviewed many of the scientists on this topic. At the end of 2019, I had just finished my podcast. It's called Where Is My Mind? Had the first book had come out, and I was still pulled in this direction of wanting to research more and wanted to spend all my energy in this area. So after spending 10 years at the firm and moving from associate to eventually a partner at the firm, I decided to leave, not knowing what would be next. I just said I needed, I needed to give myself the space to do other things because I was so passionate about this other area. And I was in a great spot professionally. Like if you were looking back years ago, I would have said, wow, Mark, you really made it. Like that, you're in a good spot for your future. Uh, but my priorities shifted dramatically. So right before the pandemic, I went on a bunch of meditation retreats when I was transitioning out of my firm, wrote my second book, An End to Upside Down Living. And then getting to the new book, An End to Upside Down Liberty, started to look at current events very closely as the pandemic was unfolding. And that led to the latest book, An End to Upside Down Liberty, which was published in the fall of 2021. And that's brilliant. I'm still <laughs> trying to fathom you know, the, the, the hook that pulled you into your understanding of consciousness, being a lady talking about psychic abilities <laughs> on a podcast, like, <laughs> I, know. I mean, we all, we, if you, if you know it, you know it, you know, but it's, it's, um, it's funny for me. I had, I had a mom that was into kind of new age ideas and things like that. And, you know, she'd lend me the occasional Deepak Chopra book and I'd be like, yeah, all right. You know, it never really grabbed me, uh, per se. I mean, I like the understanding of like Eckhart Tolle in A New Earth, his understanding of kind of reframing our psychology around mind, I found very useful and practical. Um, and then later, as I kind of dipped more into a spiritual understanding, that that started to develop, you know, new meaning for me in different ways. But it wasn't until plant medicines where I like viscerally felt and knew the teachings in a different way. And it was like, holy shit, like consciousness is everywhere. Everything is alive. Whatever soul thing that I have animating me right now, it's in the trees, it's in the clouds, it's in literally, it is the substrate of all things. And um, that, that just blew me away. It's like an unforgettable moment that's so visceral, you know, it, it, it speaks to the direct experience of such things. Um, it's really cool and fascinating to me that you were were grabbed and pulled in this direction so strongly from an indirect experience. You know, when did you, was it the meditation retreats and things like that when you really started to have um, your own direct experience of, and I'm not speaking about, you know, run-ins with other entities and things like that. I don't know if that's ever happened with you, but um, just a deeper understanding of the fundamental nature of consciousness and, and really what you speak to. Yeah, that's a great question because in my research and also in talking to lots of people, their shift typically happens as a result of direct experiences. And for me, it did start off much more of like in an intellectual way and it's continued that way, but I've started to have experiences of my own. And when I think back to that 2016 period, even though I was learning a lot and starting to read scientific papers and so on, I started to have synchronicities that really blew me away where things would repeat in my life where when I looked at them with my intellectual mind, the probability of those things happening was so low and they kept happening over and over again. I mean, it was to the point where I was writing them down every day. So there was something mystical happening that was, it was subtle. It wasn't like what you were describing with the psychedelic experience. I haven't had one of those massive types of experiences like that. Uh, but I was having those subtle synchronicities. And then you, you raise a good point when you talked about meditation. I did start having changes 
um, starting in 2020 when I went on those retreats. So what I did was in the in early 2020, when I gave my firm notice that I was going to be transitioning out over the next few months, I didn't want to just leave day one. Um, I, I wanted to make it a smooth transition. I went on some retreats, which I hadn't had an opportunity to do before because I was always working and in client services work, you're on call all the time. So I went on three retreats. One was an Ayurvedic retreat in New Mexico. So it's called Panchakarma, where it's dietary, energetic. Uh, it was amazing. Then I had a week off. And then I went on a, a nearly week-long silent meditation retreat with a woman named Mukti, who is the wife of Adyashanti, who is a, a very well-known teacher. Oh, he's incredible. Yeah, he his <laughs> in My Dark Night of the Soul, I read his book and I had to put it down because it was too correct. It was fucking frying me. And only after the fact, like months after the fact, could I actually chew on that. But that, that in my opinion, um, is one of the greatest books ever written when it, especially when it comes to that, like the full ego dissolve people talk about that. It is not a pretty experience. It is not a, uh, it, you know, it, it's not like I increase manifestation powers and somehow, you know, have the ability to control nature. Like it is, it's fucked up. And I, and I almost didn't make it through it. His book really kept that together. He's a brilliant, brilliant teacher. So that's, that's phenomenal that you were with his partner. Yeah. Well, I was with his partner who is, she's amazing as well. Then I took a week off and that's when I wrote my second book right after the retreat. And then the following week, I went on a retreat with Adi Ashanti for nearly a week as well. Silent meditation. So I had, a, that was a very intense period, which I had, I had never done anything like that before. And I started to experience physical energy. And this was within a first, within the first few days of the the retreat with Mukti, where in my face, in my head, I was feeling things physically. And at first I didn't know what it was. And then I felt this thing pounding in the middle of my forehead. I'm like, what is that? And we were, the retreat was held at a, a, a Buddhist retreat center, even though the retreat itself was non-denominational. But there were all these statues with people with a dot at their third eye. And I said, oh my goodness, that, that's what's happening. My third eye is actually pounding. I've read about this before, but I'm feeling it. And since then, I, I feel energy all the time. I've been meditating a ton. And it's, it's something I can't deny. It's there as I'm speaking right now. This is something that didn't exist before. Uh, and it's, it's difficult to describe with words, but it's, it's like you know there's a connection happening with this energy. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I think about Terrence McKenna, like, uh, you know, in his funny Terrence, classical Terrence voice saying that we, language <laughs> can't describe the, the, the experience, it can't hold it. Our language is not enough to encapsulate uh, what happens in, in plant medicines or any transcendent experience for that matter. And I, I used to think, you know, hocus pocus about meditation <laughs> really for a long time in, in comparison to my journeys with plant medicines. And it was only until uh, probably the last year and a half or two years that I started working with Emily Fletcher, who runs a 6,000 year old Vedic meditation practice. Uh, mantra meditation that like where I'm entered states there that I never would have thought I could achieve sober, just wow. mind blowing states of consciousness where a full dissolve to the center of, you know, unconditional love, where it's just like reverberating through every cell in my body, the ultimate high, no come down, no, I mean, literally no drug can touch it on earth. I went to Arizona state and I've used every, everything on the table, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, mm -hmm. um, Nothing, nothing touches those experiences. And that, that to me is, it's not the point of it, but it's a damn nice side effect of dropping in, you know, regularly. And it's certainly something that keeps me coming back. Yeah. 
And as you were talking, Kyle, you reminded me of two experiences that I had, which I think are worth mentioning related to this topic. Um, one was right after the retreat with Mukti and another was six months before I went on a Kriya yoga retreat, which wasn't as intense, but it was like breathing and meditation exercises, but I guess it was enough to stimulate things for me. Um, and that was just a short weekend retreat, that other one that I had done. Um, and it, I guess it was like an ego dissolution in hindsight when I look at it, but it was a short period when I was in a meditation following both of these retreats where I felt an energy overcome my body that was so intensely positive. I guess blissful is the word, or I would say love is the closest word that I can use with the English language that describes it, but it was beyond that. And it was so overwhelming that I thought I was going to die. And especially the one after the Mukti retreat, I literally had this thought, it happened in a split second, that I was going to disappear if I didn't stop this from happening. And I thought to myself, well, if I disappear, then there are going to be people like friends and family who will be upset about that. So I shouldn't disappear. And that was a split <laughs> second. But uh, uh, incredibly intense. Another one of those things where it's undeniable that something otherworldly was going on. And I think that it was an attempt at some kind of an ego death, that my body was resisting. It, there was a terror that overcame me. That's a beautiful way to describe it. You know, I think um, I've had ego dissolve moments on some of the, the, I don't want to compare them, but I would say some of the heavier guns of, of that space, five MEO DMT, uh, the Sonoran desert toad certainly has those capabilities. And in those moments where it's just a dissolve and it's not quite gone away there, there's for me less, um, it's easier to surrender and there's less, there's less grabbing or terror. Um, but I've had moments like that where I've thought like, if I, if I don't stop this, if I continue to surrender and allow this, like I will, there's a point of no return where like, I will you know, zap myself out of existence. And <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, uh, it certainly felt that way. And I'm, I, you know, in hindsight and having read Ajashanti's book, it, it made me really understand like that was like the last stretch of the ego grasping with everything it could to hold on to its it's life, you know, and, and, um, and understanding that too, uh, gave me a little bit more compassion for myself for, for all parts of the self, right? Like, Oh, okay. That's cool. I, I get it. I get it. You want to stick around, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, certainly, a, you know, a harrowing experience for sure. Yes. Uh, one of my favorite spiritual teachers, in addition to Adyashanti, his name's Dr. David Hawkins. He talks about the final run, which is describing what you're talking about. This, this last, uh, letting go before the ego can fully dissolve. And many people do describe having a terror because it is a letting go in a sense that many of us never have before. But once that period is transcended, according to the people that have done it, it's there's like a new level of consciousness that's achieved. Yeah, I love I love David Hawkins' work. Um, letting Go is a phenomenal book. He's got a few that I love. Power versus Force, one of my favorites. I think Wayne, Wayne Dyer uh, spoke about that one. His... his um he doesn't call it like the structure stages of consciousness like Ken Wilber, but he does have a, a consciousness map. And in that, you know, like if you believe God is outside yourself and, and uh, if anger is your primary emotion, then God is a vengeful God. Right. And he kind of maps this um, all the way through. And then, you know, as you raise your vibrational frequency to love and compassion, you have different versions of God that you experience. But what was always curious to me 
up until that point in the last year and a half was that when you reach the stage of enlightenment, and this isn't me saying, <laughs> here I am, I'm fucking enlightened. Like, it's not it at all. But he, God simply is, is the final stage. And I was like, wait, God isn't love. God isn't, you know, like, there's not compassion. Like, what? I don't, I don't get it. I, did, I didn't understand um, that God simply is. And, and Paul Check really helped me out with that because at the, the ultimate stage of God, the reason the Tao cannot be spoken is because anything you'd speak about God, the equal and opposite is true. And so mind in and of itself being uh, of duality itself, having subject-object relationship in order to even think about something puts it in that, in that phase. Um, but the Tao that cannot be spoken is the ultimate heart of what we're speaking to. And, and um, that just is. There is nothing past that, nothing <laughs> beyond it, and nothing to describe about it because any description, the equal and opposite is true. And that's a mindfuck in and of itself. There's a lot of paradox uh, diving deep like that. So, you know, I could I could rabbit hole so much with you on on uh, on consciousness and all that, and that's it's absolutely phenomenal. And just hearing, um, you know, who you've been fortunate enough to have as your teachers uh, makes a lot of sense. Because when I get to the end of this book, I was like, this dude knows. Like, <laughs> there's not many people that understand consciousness in this way uh, from the non-dual perspective. I mean, they exist for sure. Um, the way you explain it is. It's just, it's very simple and beautiful and straight to the point. And I really appreciate that. Uh, of course, you know, that, that has to happen from direct experience. You said you're, you know, really watching 2020 onward from a critical eye. And it, it actually surprised me that not more people from finance looked at things that way, or at least were openly critical about it, understanding 2008 in hindsight. You know, you watch... Um, inside job with Matt Damon as the narrator or the big short, or you read any of the books that have come out since then to really understand how the, that giant sweep of wealth from the middle class to the, to the 1% or whatever you want to call that, the elites, just how that went down. And, um, you know, less of that being accidental. And I don't know where your opinion lies on that, but it just, it just made me think like, shouldn't, wouldn't there be more people who really understood that uh, kind of watching what our government does, how it responds to things on a global level. I mean, that, that just seems like it would it would just make my, you know, at, at the very least, it would raise my attention to any decisions being made going forward uh, with that level of scale. What really was the, the impetus for you, like really, you know, wanting to pay attention to all this stuff? Was it something right from the get-go or was it where, you know, the more that went on, the more you were like, no, nah, I'm smelling something fishy here? Well, I was in a position where I had an opportunity to really dive into what was happening because I had just left my job and we were in lockdown. I was living in San Francisco, so I, there was nothing. I wasn't really doing much, and I like to research anyway. So I had an opportunity to look at things that seemed weird to me. The first thing that seemed weird, I remember, was a doctor, an ER doctor, I think, from Northern California who gave a press conference saying basically that COVID was not what the mainstream media was saying, something to that effect. And it was taken off of YouTube. And it was pretty benign. He was just explaining his observations. And so I was continuing to see things like that and then started to listen to people who had a more conspiratorial angle. I think in hindsight, what was my openness to it? Because I know a lot of people who are from the finance world who I would say are really smart intellectually who do not see what's happening and will reject a lot of the things that I'm saying and that it's too conspiratorial and so forth. So they, 
they just don't see it or there's a block somehow. Uh, in my professional career, in my mid-20s, there were some business deals that I worked on where I saw corruption. So in the field of intellectual property, these are inventors that are coming up with things that are, by definition, novel and non-obvious relative to what's been done before. And that can be threatening to the interests in the industry, especially if you're a smaller company going up against bigger players. There's a, an incentive for the bigger ones to squash the small guys. So I, I saw things like that and the, the tactics that can be used with the media and the court systems and so forth. So I was primed with that. And then when I started to research consciousness, especially for my first book, In End Upside Down Thinking, I saw the way in which the alternative consciousness researchers were treated, the ones that were doing studies, scientific studies on psychic abilities and so forth. Even though they were doing studies that were scientifically rigorous, the media was smashing them. If you go on Wikipedia, some of them are called pseudoscientists. The mainstream. Yeah, you bring up. You bring up. Uh, Rupert, sorry to jump in, but you bring up Rupert Sheldrake, who I absolutely loved on Joe Rogan's. I've since read a couple of his books. Just a fantastic. I mean, fantastic. His work could not be more important for the studying of consciousness and, and you know the 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 field that we're all playing in. Like it, it's incredibly important. And to see you know you mentioned the pseudoscience remarks on Wikipedia, uh, yeah. TEDx taking down his talk. They ban his talk. It was just like, wait, that, that makes you scratch your head, right? Right. Exactly. So I, I saw that in the consciousness space with, with, with Rupert Sheldrake and others, and, and I interviewed them for my podcast. So I got to hear from them what it was like in addition to reading about it. Um, and then I, I just saw the same pattern repeating when COVID started. And the more I researched, the more I realized there was this whole other area that I just hadn't seen before in understanding the, the true history of this country and of geopolitics and if you're actually in search of the truth, which is what my MO really has been, is I want to understand what's going on here because the way I used to look at life was completely wrong. So I want to understand why we exist so that I can figure out how to live. Um, and that has led me down these rabbit holes to uncover the, the structure of the world that we live in. That's powerful. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, a lot's going through my mind right now, but you know, I, I, I was camping with my son and we, you know, maybe our second camping trip, he's young. He's still six years old right now at the time of this podcast. And so he was four when we were camping and it was our second time camping. And I'm, I didn't have cell phone reception, but I'm hearing all the rumblings of people that we're camping with. And I kind of just thought, you know, if, if it's, if it's a big deal, they'll kick us out of the park. Maybe, I don't know. We'll see. And sure enough, we got kicked out of the park. They shut down all the state parks. They told everybody to go home, to stay at home. And, you know, we got refunded 20 bucks and I was like, this is curious. And I had already, you know, been podcasting and listening to podcasts and had a number of friends send me a great podcast that Tony Robbins had done uh, during his COVID series. I think he only did three episodes. I think it was the second one. I'll link to that in the show notes if people haven't heard it. But he had six, you know, because he's Tony Robbins, he had six of the best MDs in the world that were, you know, prominent, not just... um really good at their job, but like, you know, the who's who, two of them, I think were from Stanford, two from the Cleveland clinic or the Mayo clinic. Um, they had the Senator from Minnesota, you know, and universally all six of these guys said masks don't work because of the, the micron size. They're designed for bacteria. They're not designed for viruses, you know, and that was like a unanimous thing. That was no big deal. I didn't think much of it. I thought, well, better to be safe than sorry. If this does turn out to be the bubonic plague. And, um, 
you know, they had stated so much more. And I started following these guys after the fact, and they had the same thing happen. Uh, you know, there was um, the, the, the headline read, Silicon Valley's biggest think tank at Stanford taken off of YouTube. And what they had done is a review on Santa Clara County. This is where I was born and raised in the Southern Peninsula there in, in Cupertino and Sunnyvale. And their data showed like, this is not what we expected it to be. It's, it's um, far less of a threat than we've imagined. And we should be ta- thinking of different ways to go about uh, preventing the spread of this and, and how to treat it. And, and that got taken off YouTube. And I was like, you can't, how do you take down you know, active doctors at Stanford right now. Like, I don't understand how that gets to come off. Like, and, and then really that was the red flag. And of course, you know, there were people like David Icke on Brian Rose's podcast and different people that, that allowed me to, to take a peek into, you know, deeper, larger, uh, potentially ongoing things that had led us to here. And, you know, as, as he stated, he's been talking about this for 30 years and not everything. I don't agree with everything the guy says, but there's been a, a lot, unfortunately, he's been correct about. Um, what, what really got, I mean, obviously you break, you break this down, which is phenomenal. When you, when you break down government and, uh, you know, section one is how does government threaten Liberty? It's, it's brilliant because you give so many great examples. You talk about the Tuskegee experiment, you talk about the CIA's open, and, and I don't know how they, if it was, um, freedom of information act, but you know, they've done, they've run mind control experiments for many years and, and likely still are. You break that stuff down. What really got you into, have you always been a libertarian? Like what got you into thinking of, um, I know the first time I had heard of this, but the term voluntarism. So I came into this in the, in the 2020 era, researching COVID, then starting to look at politics without having a background in politics myself or without having political leanings because I, I just never cared about it. So if you had asked me at the start of the pandemic, where, where do you stand politically? I wouldn't have even had an answer for you. I would have said, well, I, I, I'm focused on consciousness and I used to do a lot in business and that's my focus. So I came in with a pretty clean slate. I mean, in hindsight, maybe I was more, uh, I've always been more libertarian. I don't really know. But when I started to break it down and look at political philosophies and why, why we have government and the way in which government is inherently oppressive to individual liberties and to our private property, it became very clear to me what, the, um, what, what a more ideal structure would be. Also, combining the consciousness research I had done, which was so focused on um, the importance of treating other people well and respecting other people, that is very much in alignment with libertarian principles. And in particular, as you mentioned, the, the term voluntarism, in which all of our interactions and exchanges in such a society would be fully and explicitly voluntary. Yeah, but, but let's dive into that a little bit further. One, I really like how you, you lay it out, but um, you know, we, you, one of the things you mention when you talk about the state is the fact that everything just happens. Like there's no agreement. There's, there are no agreements or contracts on uh, what is the state's role? What are we asking for? What are we receiving? How much are we paying into that? Obviously, they just taxation without representation is theft. (laughs) So uh, there's things like that, but break down, you know, really what that looks like, because I think a lot of people, um, I was speaking to my dad about this before I had him read your book. And those are the first questions that came up for him. So I'm imagining the listeners right now who haven't read it are wondering questions about that. Yes. Well, structurally, 
uh, before I go into taxation and things like that, there's a, a, a flaw in the way we do government, at least the thinking behind it. So if you look back at the early political philosophers like Hobbes and people like that, they talked about the need for a Leviathan state to manage society, because if we didn't have that, there would be complete chaos because people are inherently warlike and irresponsible and stupid, effectively. <clears throat> so therefore, we need to have a governing structure. If you think about the logic behind that, though, if you assume that people are this way, you have this kind of negative view of humanity, government, the, the structure of government says, we're going to take a subset of those people who are irresponsible and stupid and warlike, a subset, and we're going to take them and put them in a position of power over the rest of the people. So you didn't trust them in the first place, but somehow you trust them when you put a little a subset into power. And then the, the rationale is, well, we're going to elect those people, so it's okay. But if you assume that we're irresponsible and stupid, then how are we going to be responsible enough magically to elect the right people into power to rule us? So from the start, there's a problem with the way that we just put people in power if we have certain assumptions about human nature. Uh, but getting to what you were talking about in terms of having a contract with the state and things like that, a simple way to think about it, as I've talked to many people about this subject, is like if, you, if, you, if I need a plumber, I could go out and hire a plumber for that service. So if a person has a need for a good or service in society, you usually go out and hire that thing or you go buy that thing. With government, it doesn't work that way. Government provides many services that are super important, roads, courts, police, military. But those services are effectively imposed upon you when you live in a certain jurisdiction. And it's not like the typical relationship you have with a service provider. So when I, was, when I worked in business, we had clients and there was a contract between us and the client. And there were certain obligations that we had. And if we didn't fulfill those obligations, there were certain penalties. And then the client, the, you could terminate the contract if we didn't do well, for example. You know, those are the sorts of things that are typical in a client services contract. We have this government that's maybe arguably one of the, if not the most uh, important service provider in all of society, where we don't have that structure in place. We have really implied consent. And the problem with implied consent rather than explicit consent is that this, this structure can force you to do things that you didn't explicitly agree to. And that becomes problematic at a certain point when if, if someone with uh, malevolent intent gets into power, they can force people to do things they don't want. And then in the worst case scenario, you have full slavery or genocide. And that's really how I look at things as, as the biggest concern. How do we fight against that if we look at human history where those things have happened way more than we'd like? Yeah. And, and very recent history too, you know, like if, if you look, I think it, it helps. It, one of the things that helps me grasp this is kind of, um, how Jung breaks down the shadow. Anything that's in your shadow is inherently outside of your purview. And that may speak to some of the cognitive dissonance people have around this, which you, you clearly outline greatly in the book. Um, so, but if, if it's in our shadow, we can't see it more or less. And, but if we, if we can, we can easily see it outside ourselves, right? We can notice the, the, the speck in, in my brother's eye, as opposed to the log in my own, uh, much easier. If you rewind the clock, you know, just 80 years ago, we have World War II and we have, you know, not on, from a biology standpoint evolved since then. We're the same species. So just to know that this 
this type of behavior can happen and has happened really recently in our history. It's much more recent than people think because you grow up, you say, oh, hey, I've got corded phones. And we watch, you know, telephones change and kids grow up with iPads. And they're like, yeah, iPads are normal. Whatever the thing is, that's normal because you're born into it. But it was really recently when we've had, you know, massive atrocities and that massive genocides. And that's gone on and gone on and gone on on repeat. Speak to the cognitive dissonance and, um, you know, mass hypnosis and things of that nature that could be leading people to just not see what's plainly in front of them. Yeah, well, the more I, I research and think about our civilization, the more I come to the conclusion that we are a, a brainwashed and hypnotized society, that we grow up in a world that has a certain structure and we assume that's the way things should be. And we're taught things in school and we hear things in the media. And unless you're proactive to look outside of the system of information that we're presented with, it's very hard to break out of that hypnosis. And part of the hypnosis is that we live in a government structure where you pay taxes. And unlike a typical service provider where you voluntarily pay for a service, you pay the government regardless of its performance. It's going to get paid and it can do essentially whatever it wants with that money. And that's just how it is. And actually, you're virtuous for doing that, for living in that kind of a system, which to me is, is totally an inversion of the way things actually are. It really is a type of a Stockholm syndrome where I think we've come to respect our abusers, so to speak, and actually have an attachment to them. And, and because there is such a a mind control and a hypnosis and an effective brainwashing, it's it's difficult to confront information that goes against what we've been taught because it requires a basically a crushing of an old worldview. I think I was more open to looking at alternative government governance structures because my worldview was blown completely open starting in 2016. And every day I feel like I'm I'm letting go of some old belief system. So I, I happen to be very open to doing that, but I know how difficult that was and how disorienting it was. I had to recalibrate my whole life, and I still am. And I can understand why people wouldn't want to do that. You're reminding me of uh, a friend of mine who is, again, very convention, a conventional thinker, doctor. And when I first started talking to him about what I was researching regarding consciousness and, and life after death and things like that in uh 2016, 2017, his response was like, Mark, you're probably right. There is a lot of evidence that you're pointing to, but I don't want to rock the boat. My life is pretty good the way it is. And I don't want to go down this path. And he actually had the same reaction when I started talking to him about politics in my latest book. So I, I think there is a bit of that, of people like the status quo. And to think about these other topics is so earth shattering and uncomfortable that they just don't want to go there. That's a, that's a brilliant point. I have a, a close family member who I'm, I'm not going to put on blast <laughs> by name, but, um, you know, the, I asked, you know, with regard to all of the information that I had sent the person and, 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 um, the family member having read all that and listened to my podcast over the last two years, I asked why, you know, why at this point would you still say yes to being in a part of a, a statewide experiment? And, and not in those words, but, you know, just kindly. And um, she she just said that she wanted to be able to dance. She wanted to be able to go back to whatever normal is. She wanted her life back, you know, and being in California, obviously there's, there's much greater restrictions out West than where I live now in Texas. 
Um, and it, it truly is, you know, there, there are major differences between those. And I could see how that there would be a desire for that. You know, there would be a desire, just, just make it go away. Just make it go back to normal. I'll do what's necessary. And not even getting into, you know, the, the tribalism around politics or the, you know, virtue signaling around, I'm doing this for grandma, that kind of stuff. But just wanting it back to normal for herself really, really landed for me, you know, and I wasn't upset about the decision. Obviously, I think, I think when we, when we look to many of these, these topics on a consciousness level, I think of the fact that I, I want you to, to have the right to do whatever you want with your body. And in turn, I ask that you give me that in return, right? That's all I ask in return. You can, you can choose to do what you want and I don't need to be right, but I ask that simply in return for myself. And, um, and that's something that's been able to help me navigate because there's been many people, whether they are blood related or not, who have not just a hard time looking at our cognitive dissonance, but almost like a, I've heard the same thing around plant medicines. Like, Hey man, my life's great. I don't need to shake things up. I don't need to dig up skeletons out of the closet. Everything's going great right now. I'm on a good streak and I, and I don't want to rock the boat. So that, that really does land for me as, um, something that maybe even could be more than Stockholm syndrome. Like, yeah, you know, I don't trust the government, but I'm going to do this anyways, just because, um, you know, I want, I want things to go back to normal. Yeah. Well, for me, it all starts with a worldview of, of why do we exist and what is the intention of our lives? And actually my second book, An End Upside Down Living, I, I start with that question. What is the overall intention of your life? And the book seeks to answer that question because when we have an answer to that question, then that informs all of our decisions about bodily autonomy, what we put in our bodies, what we, what we prioritize, and what, which activities in our life are more important than others. So for me, I look at, at my life as part of a much longer continuum that extended before this life and extends after this life. And therefore, I want to do things that are in service of my own evolution long-term and in the service of the collective evolution. And that's where my compass is pointed. And therefore, certain things just don't matter as much to me that I'm willing to give up because in that broader context, they're insignificant. So when you, depending on who you talk to, they're going to have a different compass, a different intention for why they live. And for them, maybe certain events in their life that might seem more insignificant to me are very significant to them. And then therefore, that's going to influence their decisions. Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant way of looking at it. And I, I'm not sure that many people are thinking along the lines of the the long term trajectory of infinity. You know, the the eternal growth, eternal the the infinite spiral staircase of consciousness. You know, is is not um, it's not mainstream yet per se. Let's talk. Let's talk about uh, some of the alternatives to traditional government. You know, you speak to the non-aggression, private property rights, and, and, and truly free markets. Talk about what that looks like, because um, have you re- there's a book called uh, American Kingpin. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it. I have not read it. It's, it's fantastic. Um, it is basically the story, uh, and I forget the guy's actual name, but the Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, who was anonymously the um, creator and admin for the Silk Road 2.0 and, um, brilliant guy. I think he also went to Princeton, um, grew up in Austin, Texas, where I live now, and then moved to the Bay area and lived, bounced around San Francisco in different parts. But he, he really, you know, what he was trying to do initially, it started with like, look, I want to grow psilocybin mushrooms and I want to have a place to sell it without worrying about getting in trouble for that. 
And, you know, he had had his own run with psychedelics and that really opened him up and he wanted to be able to share that with the world, which is a pretty common trip report for, for a lot of people that, that get into that. They want to be able to give that back. And uh, it's not to say that everyone who does plant medicines becomes a dealer, but they want, they want to give access to people. And, and that's where he started with. And then over time, he let the market decide, you know, and so he, he would run up against things, you know, where, where, you know, his employees would tell him like, hey, people want to be able to sell black market kidneys on the Silk Road 2.0. And he'd say, well, if the market decides that, then the answer is yes. And they'd start selling black market organs. And then it happened again with, with like hitmen and bombs and uh, identity theft, malware and shit like that. And it always leaned towards that, right? He, he, he lived and died on the argument of libertarianism and allowing the market to decide where it went. And you could see how by the end of it, you know, when, when he's got like Al Capone, he's got the IRS, the FBI, the CIA, everyone's coming after this guy and they, they finally get him. But what Silk Road, Silk Road 2.0 had turned into based on, you know, concrete idealism with libertarian uh, views that basically led it really astray from where it, where it started at. You know, it was just a completely different place where like you, anything you wanted, you could get. Mm-hmm. Well, the way I, I think about it is that it's, as I talk about in the book, it's not just this extreme uh, libertarian perspective and the known as voluntarism, but it's that combined with the spiritual perspective. Because with the spiritual perspective, that will inform the types of relationships that you even want to engage in in the first place. So, And you think about things like your karma and how you're treating people. So you might be more hesitant to engage in activities that could eventually harm people, even if someone in the marketplace does want it. So that's an element that I add to it because I think on its own, without that spiritual component, there could be many problems, of course. Um, but getting to the actual principles of, of voluntarism without the spiritual aspect, really what it comes down to is, is private property. And the way I think about it now is either you believe that people have rights to their private property or, they do, or you don't believe that. And there's no middle ground to me. There's just kind of an extent of the erosion or invasion of private property or you believe in private property rights. So what is private property? It's essentially anything that you own. So your, your body and then any, anything uh, material that you have obtained through non-fraudulent means. So something could be gifted to you, you could buy it, so forth. And the idea in voluntarism is that you have a right to your property. No one else has a right to your property unless you explicitly give it to them. So the non-aggression principle is that no one has a right to initiate aggression against you, your body, or your other property. And you have a right to self-defense if someone initiates aggression against you and your property. And that, that's the simple principle. And aggression can be physical violence, fraud, extortion, and so forth. It's a very... A simple principle, and and this there are some great thinkers that I, I drew upon to to get to this point. Uh, the Mises Institute, which is f- based on the the teachings of Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard, it's in Auburn, Alabama. I was actually there a few weeks ago at their uh, annual Austrian Economics Research Conference. Speaking, they they have this, this kind of a mentality. Um, Walter Block as well, where. If you look at the the implications economically and societally of the non-aggression principle, then by definition, we can't have a, a government force that we haven't explicitly agreed to 
because they are, the government inherently is initiating aggression against people's private property. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we, you, you touched on it briefly um, before diving into the, the nitty gritty of, of really what voluntarism includes. But you have this graph in the book where you do break down these four quadrants. Break that down for people so they can get it in their mind's eye, because I think this is truly, you know, one of the most brilliant aspects, not only of your book entirely, you're, you're combining government and, and politics with uh, the true essence of consciousness and spirit. But, but talk about how this, these quadrants land, and, and obviously that is the difference between that and, you know, diehard libertarianism or, or things that we may have seen come and go like Silk Road 2.0. Yeah, this is really the crux of the book, Kyle. And when I before I sat down to write it, this was <clears throat> I knew this is where I wanted to to lead to because this is this is it. And I call it a metaphysical political philosophy rather than just a straight up political philosophy. And that is was something I wasn't seeing in my research. Most people were talking about, well, I'm a conservative, I'm a liberal, I'm a libertarian. There's a spectrum essentially on the extent to which they think the state should have an ability to intrude upon private property. And to me, any intrusion against private property is, is the state known as statism. So that, that belief is one end of the spectrum. If you want to have a, a vertical axis, let's say, statism, this belief in government that can invade private property, that's on the bottom. And on the top is voluntarism, where there is no state that can do that. All, all interactions are, are voluntary. And people might fall in different places on that spectrum, depending on their beliefs in private property rights. But that's the political part of, of the spectrum. What I did was I added a horizontal axis. And the horizontal axis is the metaphysical. So on the far left side of that, you have straight up scientific materialism. Some call it physicalism. This idea that all there is is matter. We are just made of matter. Consciousness, which is our sense of experiencing life, comes from our body and more specifically from our brain, which is made of matter. So when the body dies, there's no consciousness. Life is random and fundamentally meaningless. Uh, that's the scientific paradigm in today's world. That's how I used to believe. It's, it's, not, it's a very atheistic and non-spiritual perspective. So that's on the far left of this horizontal axis. On the far right is where I land now. Uh, I call it the one mind based off of the Nobel Prize winning physicist, Erwin Schrodinger. He said, in truth, there is only one mind. That's how I look at things. We're, we're part of one interconnected consciousness. Um, to use an analogy from Dr. Bernardo Castrup, a philosopher, he says that it's like we are whirlpools within an infinite stream of water where water represents consciousness. So we, we have the sense of being an individual, but we're fundamentally interconnected. That's on the far right of this spectrum. And the term I use is non-duality. Um, the idea that there is only one consciousness, not two. So to recap, there's two axes. There's the vertical. On the bottom is statism. On the top is voluntarism. And the horizontal on the far left is physicalism. And the far right is non-duality. And that leaves you with four quadrants. Each one is a metaphysical, political philosophy. And what I argue is that we need to move as a society toward the top right, toward what I call non-dual voluntarism. So it's a state a political structure that respects private property and where people in the society subscribe to a spiritual worldview where there's interconnectedness. I love that. And that's something I've been, you know, many people I have been speaking to who have, who have touched 
the one mind is that one of the greatest, um, I don't know if you call it a mistake, but one of the biggest issues that humanity runs up against is the fact that we believe in a separate world. We believe in something that we are not connected to God. I mean, that's in most religions that you know, God is separate and judging, and at least in the West, but that there's a lack of interconnectivity. You know, you speak to the, the physicalism in the idea of random of random chemical reactions leading to the birth of a universe and then through evolution, the creation of a brain, which then brings in consciousness. That, that really is what we're taught in school, more or less. And, and I think that, you know, through direct experience, we can snap that in half and grab it for ourselves. And there's many ways to go about that, not just the use of plant medicines. Uh, obviously, you know, that, that was not your path, but meditation, breath work, and many other things can get us there, even fasting. And, and I'm, you know, still leaving a ton off the table when it comes to that. I think of these things, uh, you know, they're, they're critical points. What do you think will move the needle for people to transfer where they're at from, you know, scientism into a more unified look at what consciousness is and what then will help them, uh, or maybe it's the same thing that will help them move from statism into voluntarism. Yeah, I think about this a lot. And the where I land on it is that the, the best we can do is transform ourselves individually and try to help others who are receptive. But it's impossible to force people who are not ready or, or who don't want to go there. And it might actually be against their interest because maybe there's something for them to learn spiritually by being resistant. So the way I look at things is that I want to do as, as much as I can to elevate myself spiritually, to transcend the ego and so forth. Um, and there, like you said, there are many ways of doing that. In the book, I lay out four different categories um, that of pathways. One is the pathway of knowledge. The other is a pathway of selfless service. Another is a devotional pathway and another is energetic. And to me, those four kind of encompass all of the different spiritual practices that people could think about doing. So for someone like me, that's what I'm focused on personally. And then I think about, well, how can I help others as I'm elevating myself? So for me so far, it's been writing books, doing a podcast, doing interviews, getting the information out, and trying to educate people who are really busy in their lives and want a snapshot, want something really quick to, to understand. And maybe that can be like the seed for them, like a little opening uh, that can lead to greater things. And I think if we all have an intention that's in that general direction of wanting to improve ourselves individually and having an orientation of service towards others, it'll probably lead us in a good direction societally. I don't know how many people or what percentage of the population we need to get to see real changes, but it might not need to be a hundred percent. Yeah. I think uh Sadhguru and a number of other people that have talked about, you know, in Eckhart Tolle in a new earth and his, in his beginning, he talks about the, the flowering of human consciousness and how, you know, the right conditions needed to be there for all of the flowers to come about after the first ones kind of popped up and died quickly. And if you look at the, the ascended masters, if they, if they did, you know, take bodily form and come through here, whether that be Buddha, Christ, uh, or any of them for that matter. Um, they were likely those early flowers that had popped up before their time. But now hopefully what we're, what we're heading towards is the flowering of human consciousness. And it may not be a lot. I think, uh, 2% to 10% has been ballparked by some of the more prominent thinkers and spiritual people that are, that are alive and walking today. And 
I hope that's accurate because it doesn't it doesn't look like it's going to be a clean sweep anytime soon with <laughs> changing people's minds. And um, you know, as you, as you mentioned, Ramdas, you know, speaks to to really you know operating when you operate at the soul level, you no longer need people to change because because they have you know their whatever their soul's lessons are this go around is is why they're here. And that may not be enlightenment and they may not be transcending the ego. It may not be being a compassionate and kind and considerate person. Um, and, and I think that's a tough pill to swallow for some people, but it also, you know, in that lies the seed of, of understanding and um, it makes it easier to, to let go of the need to be right in many ways, because we can see like, Oh, okay. They're on their path. And, and, and we all ultimately choose that for ourselves. But I just wonder, you know, uh, you know, st- similar thinking, you know, what does that number look like in terms of getting people to to really raise up and uh, with all the talk of existential crisis and things of that nature, you know, wh- where where does it wh- what's it going to take to not go down in a ball of fire? Um, yeah. Well, well, I wonder if it's if it's a number of people or also a like the extent to which individuals have a transformation. And David Hawkins talked about this a lot, where one person who was enlightened would counterbalance the negativity of many, many people. So maybe it's not the quantity, but it's the quality of the awakenings of the of the people that are on this path. But I also want to add that a wrinkle to this that I'm still confused by when we talk about a collective awakening and moving toward a, a freer society and a more spiritual one, which is that the spiritual community, and that's where for my first two books in my podcast, up until this new book came out, that that was my audience primarily. And a lot of those people are incredibly resistant to what I've written about and the things I'm saying with regard to government. They they tend to cling on to the need for the structure to invade private property. And they're very resistant to the notion of conspiracy, which to me is mind-blowing because looking at history for five minutes shows that conspiracy is part of everything. And it doesn't even take much research in the modern world to see that there's a lot of really dark stuff. So the the broader, the way I would describe it now is I think there's a resistance in part of the spiritual community to looking at darkness. And to me, it's a form of spiritual bypass, which I hear a lot about in the personal development world of, let's say I have this trauma or the shadow element in my own life that I don't want to look at because it's uncomfortable. To avoid that is known as spiritual bypass. So I'd heard that a lot in the spiritual sense, but I didn't, now I think there's a spiritual bypass in a collective manner where there's darkness on a planetary level that's been going on for who knows how long. And it's really, really dark and it's more evil than people want to consider because it's unpleasant. And it's like, well, I just want to focus on love and light. I'm going to ignore that dark stuff. And it, to me, it leads to a naivete that is, incredibly dangerous because it can leave us susceptible to deceptive forces. So there's, it's like an awakening in multiple vectors. And at the end of the book, I talk about this notion of waking up, cleaning up, and growing up. It comes from the philosopher Ken Wilber. This idea that the awakening is, is it's, there's, it's multifaceted, that you could be very spiritually awakened in certain ways, but maybe you haven't cleaned up your darkness. And maybe you haven't matured or grown up in certain ways. And I'm really seeing that unfold today in society. There's multiple vectors in which people are having awakenings. Absolutely. I'm so happy that you brought that up and we can finish with that to to keep it on an hour. I really want to introduce you to a lot of my friends in the podcast game. I want the whole world to know who you are and to have, you know, just for me as a fan to continue to listen to these conversations with yourself. 
where can people find you? And, um, you know, we'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. And, and with permission, I'd love to introduce you to some other good podcasts. Well, first, Kyle, I want to thank you for that generous offer. I'd love to talk to your friends and thank you for having me and for your support. And I also want to thank you for what you're doing and the information you're spreading to help people improve their lives. I mean, it's critical to have these messages put out there and I, I can tell you're devoted to it. Um, in terms thank of, you, fine, yeah, I really do appreciate because I, I, I know how hard it can be to take that leap um, and you're, you, you just seem to be all in. So I appreciate that. Um, in terms of what places you can find me, my website is a good place to start. It's markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. My podcast is called Where Is My Mind? And it's a good intro to a lot of these concepts. I worked with a podcast production company that usually works on sports shows. So the goal was to make it really catchy and, and to bring the ideas across for people who are really busy. So it's an eight-episode series where it includes clips with all of the scientists and other people that I interviewed. So in one episode, you might hear from 10 different people. Um, and my three books, which are available on in uh, hard copies, Kindle, and Audible. The first one's called An End to Upside Down Thinking, and that's all the evidence suggesting that the brain does not produce consciousness. My second book, An End to Upside Down Living, is about ways of living life with the spiritual perspective. Ultimately, it's the awakening journey, including my own, but also having studied many other people's journeys. I talk about uh, what I found. And my third book, An End Upside Down Liberty, which is on this concept of non-dual voluntarism. Well, I've loved having you on, brother. I hope to do it again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.